If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I guess that song we just sang would classify as a, a newer song, even though it was written in 2007. All I can tell you is I like it a lot. I like the words, I like the music. I think it's really cool. Some great new songs being written all the time for Christianity. You've heard me say this before, that one of the unique things about Christianity is our music how much there is, and all the various ways we have of expressing glory to our Father and thanking Him for all that He's done. And I think it's just a great part uh, of our heritage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful for your kindness and love and grace, and again, for this time of the year that we celebrate the great gift of Christ, the gift of salvation that was given to us. Father, as we celebrate, as we gather together to worship you, to thank you, and to show you our honor and respect for all that you have done for us, as well as for who you are, again, we come, Lord, asking that you would bless, because, Father, we recognize that we are needy, really, at every moment in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us as we once again can consider the text before us in 2 Corinthians. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds that you would grant us understanding. And Father, there will also be a very strong desire to, to want our, our thoughts, to want our, our lives, our behaviors, the way we make choices, to be shaped and changed by your word. We're thankful, Lord, for your patience with us. Help us, Father, to be and express that kind of patience towards others. And so we now ask, Lord, that you would bless us by your word as we read and as we contemplate the truths you've given us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Just got to double check. I can't remember if I turned this on once or twice. Because if I did it twice, that means it's off. There we go. All right. First Corinthians, I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when Paul writes, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, or some translations will say there is liberty. The idea here is that the Spirit of Christ turns a person to the Lord Jesus Christ and takes the veil from their hearts so they can see Christ in the new covenant. And we, we spent a little bit of time last week talking about the word veil and, and what that meant. And it's important for us to remember that it's not one of those, it's not a, a sheer uh, kind of material that you can see through. It's, it's more like a curtain, one that, that obliterates being able to see one way or the other. And so that veil is on our face until the Lord does a work in our heart. And then he, he takes that veil from our heart. He takes that veil from our eyes so to speak, and, and we have understanding. And we are brought into the spiritual freedom. We're brought into the spiritual liberty that is in Christ. Again, remember that as Paul is writing these things, he is still addressing the issues of these really false teachers, these individuals who are trying to infiltrate the church in Corinth and, and lead them away. Even though in their minds, the minds of the false teachers, they're trying to lead people away from Paul because they want to be the boss. They want to, they want to have the authority. 
as they do so, they're doing it with false teaching, with wrong ideas about salvation, about Christ. So these false teachers at Corinth were really holding forth again the law of Moses um, and saying that that was the way. And so Paul is teaching that really the only way is through the Spirit of Christ who will transfer us from a life of legalistic bondage into a life of liberty. Galatians 5.1, I want to read it to you from, from uh, the ESV, and then I'm going to read it again from the New American Standard. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The New American Standard says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Again, the view there is that if we're trying to find a way to earn our salvation, if we're trying to find a way to please God by obedience to the law, that that's slavery. There's no, there's no spiritual freedom in that. That, that we, we can't do that anyway, which he's explained in many places. So the idea is, is that we come to Christ and, and there's freedom there. That does not mean there's no obligations in our life. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the idea is that there is, there's freedom, there's liberty uh, when we come to Christ. And so he is really pressing that idea. In Vine's expository dictionary, he talks about the word freedom that's in uh, Galatians 5 and also that we find in 2 Corinthians 3. And Vine says this, the combination of the noun, freedom, with the verb stresses the act or the completeness of the act. The aorist tense indicates both its momentary and comprehensive character. In other words, it was done once for all. So then he goes on and says the phraseology is that of manumission, which basically is voluntarily uh, free, where a slave is voluntarily freed by the slave owner from slavery. He says, which among the Greeks was defected by what's called legal fiction, according to which the manumitted slave was purchased by a god. As a slave could not provide the money, the master paid it into the temple treasury in the presence of the slave. A document would then be drawn up containing the words for freedom. No one then could enslave him again as he was the property of a god. So the idea with all of this is, and as Christians we sometimes will, will talk like this, we, we understand that we've been freed from the slave market of sin, and then along with that we use the phrase that we are now slaves of Christ. But when, when we talk about being slaves of Christ, this is not where Christ purchased us from the slave market of sin and said, now you're my slaves. The idea really is, is that he has freed us from the marketplace of sin. We're free. We are slaves of Christ because the concept that's developed in the scripture is the natural response is I want to submit and serve him. To do so is, is in my best interest. The term that's used in Ancient documents is, is you are a love slave, which probably shouldn't be used today because it brings the wrong idea to the minds of people. But the idea is that you are willingly enslaving yourself to an individual because you love them, because you're committed to them. And there was a special earring that an individual would wear where an individual might be freed from being a slave, and then the individual would, would say because of their uh, affection and commitment to their, to their owner, they then voluntarily submit themselves to live in submission to their owner. And of course, this ring would signify that, and that would also speak well of the owner. 
Individuals would see that this man is, is choosing to be enslaved to this individual, and normally that would take place because the owner is such a high character and quality individual. And that's the idea. So even though we talk about being slaves of Christ, the idea should always be there in our mind that this is something that we want to do. We do so because we love Christ. So when someone says, well, you, you have to go to church, we don't then just say, or we shouldn't say, yeah, well, you know, this is one of the commands of God. No, what we can say is, yes, it is a command of God, but I want to do that. We, we desire to do that. And the idea would, should be then, what individuals want to have, what we want to communicate to individuals is, yes, there are these laws and commands that God gives to us, but we want to follow them because we love him, because he is so great, perfect, kind, benevolent, and we can go on with that list. So that's the idea of this relationship that we have with him. So one has stated, another commentary has stated that this refers to, that this freedom he's talking about here, refers to a freedom from spiritual blindness, a freedom from self-righteousness, and a freedom from legalism. And this freedom, again, is caused by personal faith in their relationship with Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce says this. He says, Paul certainly knew the love of Christ to be the all-compelling power in life. Where love is the compelling power, there is no sense of strain or conflict or bondage in doing what is right. The one who is compelled by Jesus, loved and empowered by his Spirit, does the will of God from the heart. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free. So look more carefully at verse 18. Again he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, uh, or to the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the phrase there, the, the first phrasing, we all, unveiled face, beholding, that is in what's called the present tense, which means that there's this idea that we are continually beholding. So I kind of want to do some explanations so we can really grasp what he's talking about. Because there's this idea, again, that we're continually beholding the Lord as we look in the mirror of the glory of the Lord. So first of all, we all. We all is a very simple uh, word there. The idea is that this is not something that's only for a select few. It's for all who believe in Christ. It's for all who are saved. That would also mean there's this expectation that all of us are doing this. As believers, we all are doing this. We have, once again, an unveiled face. We are those who are born again by grace through faith. Every genuine believer of Jesus has an unveiled face. Unveiled, again, is in the perfect tense. So that pictures, then, for us a completed action, the day you got saved, with lasting effect. We continue to have a face that is not veiled. And you'll see the importance of that in just a moment. So in other words, the veil was taken off the day that the Spirit of the living God really invaded and indwelt our spiritually dead bodies, making this body or this wreck of a body, this spiritually dead body, a worship center. We are now his temple. He has opened the eyes of our heart to see Jesus as Lord and Savior and enables us, enables us now to continually behold. The idea there is that we are now able to continually understand something of the glory of the Lord in the Word of God. 
So we're all able as believers to understand something as we look into the Word of God about the glory of God. Again, he mentions that as an unveiled face. Now that's, that's important because of this. The veil is removed in Christ, or because of our belief in Christ. We have unfettered freedom now to approach God as our everlasting Father seated in His throne room. We need to sometimes remind ourselves that when we pray, we are in essence entering into the throne room and I am able to speak to God face to face. That is the intimacy. There, there's no one in between us. Christ has made the way. Because I'm a Christian, because of Christ, I can talk directly to God the Father. That's, that's a marvelous thing. So I am in face-to-face communication with God. And because we can have this daily face-to-face encounter with God, who's the God of the universe, the ones that Paul is writing to, especially those who are our Jewish background, are going to remember what we mentioned last week, which was in Exodus. So turn to Exodus 33 for just a moment. We're going to look at Exodus 33, we're going to look at Exodus 34, and we're going to see how Paul ties this together and how this then ties in together in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 33, and I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Again, let me remind you that the pillar of cloud, which was the daytime, it was a pillar of fire at night, Uh, the the term we would use to describe that is the Shekinah glory. That's the glory of the Lord, the glory of God's presence. Verse 10, And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Now, if you need to, turn the page in your Bible, but go to chapter 34 and look at verses 32 through 35. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out and told the people of Israel what, was, what, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So here's the thought as we look at those passages. You'll notice that when you read through that, both the nation of Israel, the Israelites, and Moses had a close encounter with God or with Jehovah God. The difference was, and what's pointed out there in the wording, is that Moses had a face-to-face encounter with God. The people encountered God at a distance. They would see the pillar of cloud. And even though they were at a distance, it was impressive enough that they would worship, as we just read. They would all worship the Lord. And so that's how they responded. But whose face was changed? 
but Moses was. Only the face of Moses was changed because he had what? The face-to-face encounter with the living Lord. So here's what we need to think about when we look at that. If you desire to grow in grace and Christ-likeness, which would be the norm for believers, the only way for that to happen is by a face-to-face encounter with God, a face-to-face encounter with Christ. For that to be facilitated, for that to happen, we need to look into the mirror of God's Word. Secondly, we need to do more than just gaze at it like the Israelites did. We need to sit at Jesus' feet and soak in the word. Remember the difference between Mary and Martha? That that Martha was the one who was busy working when Jesus was there, and Mary would stop all of her work and come and sit at the feet of Jesus. So we need to do our part, and the Spirit will take the glorious word and transform us from glory to glory, making us more and more like Christ. Not only that, but our glory is even better than what Moses experienced because in contrast to Moses, our transforming glory is increasing. It's from glory to glory. Remember that what is pointed out in 2 Corinthians and also when you read through Exodus is that the glory that was on Moses' face or the shining of his face was fading. For us, that's not the case. When he says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. Again, there's that, there's that intimate connection there. So what we want to make sure that we understand is that there are tools that we use. There are practices that we engage in that help us in this process. One of them, that we're looking into the Word of God. We're reading it. We're studying it. But it's not just that. It's not some kind of a ritualistic thing that we do. The idea is is that as we engage in the Word of God, which is really what we're doing when we read it, when we're thinking about it, when we're studying it, we're engaging with the Word of God. And so as we do that, that that requires time spent with the Lord. That is, in a sense, the key to this transformation. What you will notice often in a good marriage is that each person in the marriage, the husband and the wife, They begin to change. They become different, which is a good thing, hopefully. And part of what takes place is they become more and more alike. Now, hopefully what's happening is it's the good things that are kind of being transferred back and forth, you know, not the bad things. But the idea is is that you, you become different. It's not so much that you look different physically, but you become different in your attitude. You become different in the way that you think. You become different in who you are as a person. I can tell you that after 43, marriage, 43 years of marriage with my wife, I am very different now than I used to be. I am, much, I am, I, I am more kind. You may not think so, but I'm more kind. <laughs> I'm, I'm more gracious. People have made fun of me saying that my thimble is now full of grace, but it's bigger than that. But I'm more, I think I'm more patient with others. I do try to be much more understanding. So now the Lord has, is the one who gets credit for those changes taking place in my life. But they did not happen in isolation of my relationship with her as well as my relationship with God in his word. All those things are being used by God. That is, again is the normal. But the way that that transformation takes place in a marriage is because you are with each other. You are with each other through all kinds of things, through the mundane things of, you know, making sure you get the kitchen clean and the bathrooms clean, 
to everything, all the tragedies that take place in your life that you share life together as well as the great times together. You become more like each other. So this idea then for the believer is it's so vital for us to spend time with God. That really is the key. That's why, you know, you've heard me kind of make fun before of certain book titles that I think give out the very wrong idea of what it means to be a Christian and to spend time in the Word. You know, there's certain devotional books called Five Minutes with God. God, try that with your wife. Say, whoa, ho, whoa, Bob, I, I spent five quality minutes with my wife today. Well, let's talk to your wife, see how that, how that goes. Right? It just doesn't work that way. You know, they, they, for a while, there were several years where when it came to parenting, there was kind of this theme that you would see on the news and different news reports and different books, and they kept really pushing the idea of, of spending quality time with your children, which is very important. I'm all for that. But it seemed, and I do think this was taking place, that it was almost an excuse. Well, you may not be able to spend a lot of time but you want to spend quality time. Just so you know, no. It's both. All right? It's quality and quantity. If you only spend supposed quality time with your children, however you define that, there's going to be defects in their life and development. And I really don't think your kids would understand that. Imagine on Christmas Day, they, you, they, you open some, they open their presents, there's some new toys... And perhaps they want you to play with them. And you say, well, but I've, I've spent some quality time with you this morning. I read the Bible story. I've got things to do. I don't think your kids care. They want you there for more than five minutes. That's important. Because that's, that's, that's the relationship. We should want to be there. And we should want them to want us to be there. You know that? So when it comes to the Lord, who is only the most important person in our, in our lives ever, that same desire should be there. Now, it's difficult for us because we can't see him. At the same time, though, as we spend time with the Lord, he is transforming us, and I do believe that desire grows, and we recognize its importance. So, so the phrasing there, beholding and being transformed. Sometimes Christians do ask the question, how can I change? Well, the best and most enduring change comes from the time that we spent with God. We are transformed by time spent with the Lord. Now, there are other ways to change. People change sometimes because of guilt. We sometimes change because of, I have willpower. Sometimes we change because someone has motivated us to change. But normally, and maybe always, none of those methods bring change that is deep and lasts very long. Transformation comes by the Spirit of God as we spend time in the presence of the Lord. It requires something. That's that word beholding. The word beholding there means this. It means more than just a casual look. It means to make a careful study. We all have something to behold, something to study. We can be transformed by the glory of the Lord, but only if we will carefully study it. So that's why we always emphasize, Christians have always done this, they've always emphasized time in the word. And so, we, and we do, and we do it different ways, right? There's, there's a, what, what I call a devotional reading of Scripture. Now, that you can even call that study. There's a way to, to do that, where that is a, a important aspect of our life. 
It's, it's the word, it's a very simple one, and it's important. Uh, there's other ways to study scripture. I've seen different lists. I think uh, one list has as many as 12 different ways to study the word of God. Um, it'll be in the bulletin next week, but in January, I'm going to teach a class on how to study the Bible. And we're going to go through a lot of those ways. And hopefully you'll be able to understand, you know, it's just a, this is how you do it. This is what you do. This is the kind of time that it takes. Um, it, remember that sometimes we think in a negative way when it comes to studying the word of God. We think, well, I don't have hours and hours and hours. Okay. You don't have to worry about that. There's different ways to manage your time to be able to study. Uh, and so we want to, we want to, we're going to take a very honest look at the things we can do with the Word of God that you do have time for, even though there are times we do have to make time for that. But it is not this, this it's not a burden. Okay, It's not a burden to where all of a sudden we say, well, do I have to give up my hobbies? No, not necessarily. You may have to give up some TV, but that would be healthy, uh, to say the least. There may be some other things we have to give up, but there are ways to do that. And so that should be something that we as believers Again, want and desire. I guarantee you this. This, this is life, in one sense, pretty simple. Now, don't raise your hands because you might embarrass your spouse. But how many of you want to have a better marriage? <laughs> Somebody's like, you know. But the, this is how you get it spend time with the Lord. Because the more you become like Jesus, the better spouse you will be, and the better your marriage will be. Because we always think of, well, not always, but most of the time we think of, and I love a better marriage. The more she changes, the better to be. Right? Or the more he changes, the better to be. And there may even be some truth in that. But that's not the best way to approach it because you can't change the other person. However, you can become different. But this is not where you become different because you make a list, because you read a good book, and it says these are the 12 ways that you can become a better husband or a better wife. They might be helpful, but you want deep, lasting change, genuine change. Become more like Christ. And it, it'll happen. It will happen. So as we look into God's mirror, we are changed into the same image of the Lord. When we spend time, and that would be called beholding the glory of God, we are beholding the glory of the God of love, the God of grace, the God of peace, the God of righteousness. We will then see a transforming growth in our lives in love, grace, peace, and righteousness. This is how you can know that someone is spending time with the Lord. Are they being transformed into the same image of Christ? Now, a great deal of this depends on what we see when we look into the mirror. So let me kind of explain that a little bit. In the analogy, God's mirror is not necessarily a mirror that shows us what we are as much as it shows us what we will become. That involves both of those things. But sometimes I think we get the idea that it's only revealing to us what we are. But it's both. It's showing me what I am and showing me what I could become. And what we will become is based on our picture of who God is. Which is why we go back to the word of God to get an accurate picture of who God is. And we would then be transformed into the same image. So if you have a faulty image of God, you're going to be transformed into the wrong thing. Because not everyone sees the truth when they look into the mirror. That's why it's important for us, again, as iron sharpens iron, we can sometimes misunderstand what the Word of God is saying or what it's teaching or what it's presenting to us. 
So as you and I just discuss the scripture, maybe formally at times when we're teaching, but maybe informally, we will learn things from each other and maybe have things corrected so we have a more accurate picture of Christ and who he is so that we become more like Christ. In my reading of psychology, which I confess that I do a lot of, even though I don't like it, there's this diagnosis. So I'll tell you a story. It's kind of a composite. There's a man named David. David's 30 years old. He gets up every morning. He follows a morning routine. And he gets to his bedroom mirror. And when he looks into the mirror, he sees this horribly distorted face. His nose is swollen. It's crooked. There are scars. He has a bulging eye. The pain or the psychological pain from his deformities made this guy, David, quit college and he moved in with his parents and he's been there for 10 years. Since then, he rarely leaves his room. He's afraid to let anyone see him. He's had four cosmetic surgeries. They've done nothing to help his condition because the problems with, because the problems with David's appearance are only in his mind. There's nothing wrong with his face. So the psychologists call that body dysmorphic dis, uh, disorder. We'll just call it BDD. It causes people to imagine themselves as deformed and ugly when really they are normal. So it's not necessarily this that they see that their face is, in a sense, grotesque. But when they see themselves, they don't see themselves for who they are they they literally when they see that so it's not like it's not like how if you if, if you're looking in the mirror and then I'm looking in the same mirror looking and I like wow when he looks in the mirror man look at that eye it's just bulging out it's not really bulging out but because you you're you emphasize all these little tiny defects they are they are enlarged in your eyes and that's all you're obsessed with that's all you can think about that my eyes aren't exactly the same that my nose is just a little crooked. Some people become so obsessed, they do have these unnecessary surgeries to correct that. And then once that's corrected, correct this. And then it just it continues. There are those who have this of their whole body. I do believe that many young people in our country go through a form of that. Again, I'm not big into the disorders. Um, I would call it other things, but nonetheless, um, there's this idea that when they see themselves, they see themselves, and they see all these flaws. And so they, they either become more shy, they don't want to go in public, or they may become obsessed with doing certain things. You know, a lot of young guys that, that lift weights, they're not really lifting weights because they love it. They're not necessarily really wanting to get stronger. They may want to look strong, but in their eyes, they believe that they are unpresentable to others. And because of the way they look, nobody will like them. So therefore, they must do this. And then, of course, with some of them, you know, if, if they begin to get larger, it's never enough. And so then pretty soon they start with the steroids. And there's some extreme cases that's... It's unimaginable that some people do certain things with their bodies thinking they look good. But that's what's going on. Now, it, I think a lot of that has to do... It's a spiritual condition. Right, we don't want to oversimplify things, but when you tear things down to their basic root, it does come to that. Because when you know who you are in Christ, right, then you're able to see more clearly. 
you may even still see deformities, but you're no longer obsessed with them. You become different on the inside. And the more that you spend time with Christ, the, di- the more different you at least respond to those things. But this is quite a problem uh, throughout the world, especially, I believe, in westernized countries. Some psychiatrists say it's a hidden epidemic. One psychologist said this, patients are virtually coming out of the woodwork. I'm meeting with a, with a new patient every week. And just so you know, I'm sure you've heard this, social media does not help with this. It makes it a whole lot worse. Because what we're always glorifying is not only what we, what we call the beautiful, is that other individuals, because of the way they say things, it's almost like, I'm now accepted because of this. I'm now accepted because of that. You know, those type of things. A lot of BDD sufferers are convinced the problem is with their face, even though some of them see it's with their whole body. Sometimes they're overwhelmed where they can barely function. There was a young teacher in Boston who tried to continue her job, but she would often run out in the middle of class because she was afraid that her imagined hideous appearance showed up even though she wore very thick makeup. There was a businessman in Denver. He called his mother from the office 15 times a day for reassurance that he did not look grotesque. He would spend hours in a bathroom stall because he carried with him a pocket mirror trying to figure out a way to improve his appearance. Some try to cope with harmful rituals. Some cut themselves to bleed the damaged area. Uh, A lot of times these individuals are convinced the problem is with their body and not with their mind. They don't want to see anyone but plastic surgeons or dermatologists or both for their problem. We don't have to be in bondage to a false image of ourselves, whether it's physical or otherwise. When we behold the picture of God as he is in truth, we will be transformed into his image. That is God's great design in our salvation. As the scripture says, in whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. John Calvin said this, that the image of God which has been defaced by sin may be repaired within us. The progress of this restoration is continuous through the whole of life because it is little by little that God causes his glory to shine forth in us. We don't use the word glory very often because it does sound at times either self-serving or arrogant, but there is this idea that's presented in Scripture which is true, that we are to reflect the glory of Christ. But the glory of Christ is not this image that I draw people to myself and that I draw people to myself to adore me because of who I am or what I am. The idea is is that people are drawn to Christ because they see the glory of what? The love of Christ. The humility of Christ. The sincerity of Christ. the, The gentleness of Christ. That's the idea. So I want to reflect the glory of Christ. And so as as you and I are transformed into the image of Christ, it is to draw people to him. So then when someone says to you, maybe, uh, depending on what the situation is, but they may say something like, I I just want you to know I've been drawn to you because you're just so kind and gentle. That's the point that you don't say, yeah, my, my mom said that I should be that way. I've worked hard on that. Okay, that's not what you do. What you do humbly is, I just want you to know that, that really the, that work being done in my life is, is by Christ. Because I, I want to be that way. You can thank them for the compliment and say that it's not, but it's not because of me. It's because of my relationship with the Lord. 
Now, I will tell you, a lot of people don't want to hear that. That's not what they want to hear. But that's the truth. But there'll be those, maybe many, it'll make them think because that's not the answer they're expected to hear. Perhaps you are beginning to plant a seed that they will mull over. And maybe, whether it's you or another person, at God's appointed time, they're going to recognize their desperate need for Christ because their, their needs. Remember, as I've mentioned this many times before, that there are four things that took place when man fell in sin. And we know the most obvious is that man was alienated from God. But there's another one that sometimes people miss, and that's this. Man became alienated from himself. A large number, maybe all, of our psychological issues, the internal things that we have that are now accented maybe even more than ever, is because of sin, because of the deterioration of how we think, how we view ourselves, how we view life, how we view others, and perhaps how we don't, do not view God. The work that God is doing in us, again, is this, is this continual progression. It works from glory to glory. It doesn't have to work from backsliding to glory to backsliding to glory. God's work in our lives can be continual. It doesn't mean that it's always just this. But it doesn't have to be this, then this, and then this, and then this. It doesn't have to be that way. It may be like this, and maybe go down, but it's, it's not going all the way back to here. That is, the, that is the norm for the believer who's growing in Christ. Again, there's no fading away. It is not a superficial glory. It penetrates to the spiritual nature of the inner man that makes us like that, that makes us like the Lord whom it comes. It's a source of light. It's normally, hardly ever, a sudden change. It's not completed as if by magic. It's not done in an instant. It is continual and a gradual progress. The last phrase that's used in verse 18 is, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. From the Lord who is the Spirit emphasizes two things. This access to God and His transforming presence in our lives by the new covenant, by the gospel, because it is through the gospel we are given the Spirit of the Lord. And number two, this work of transformation really is God's work in us, as we mentioned before. It happens by the Spirit of the Lord. It doesn't happen by the will of man or by the effort of man. We don't achieve or earn spiritual transformation by beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We simply put ourselves in a place where we can be transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, there's several, but the main one is this. Are you putting yourself in a place where the Spirit can transform you? If you are not spending time with the Lord in prayer and in the Word, then you're not doing that. And that's why you're not changing. It's that simple. We don't have to get into legalistic rules as to, well, how many minutes is it a day? All I'm going to say is a regular time with the Lord is the way the Spirit of God works in your life and my life to make us more like Christ. The key component is always the Word of God. This does not mean you have to sit down for six hours every day and study the Word of God. If you have time for that, great. But that is, we're not saying that because too often what happens is we just, in our minds, imagine things and make them so much harder than they are. And I think we sometimes do that because we're looking for the excuse. My dad used to tell me when I was much younger that I expended a great deal of energy trying to find ways to get out of work. And if I would just use that energy to get the work done, I would have more free time. That's right. That's right. And that was actually true. That's right. 
And so we can spend a lot of time trying to find a way as to why we can't do this and can't do that. There's a story once, Warren Wiersbe, who was, uh, a lot of people who are older know who he is. Uh, he has a, if you ever heard him on the radio, he has one of those voices that is just very gentle and kind and sweet, though he will say the hard things. And so he used to be very famous, he would travel the country and preach and teach and and he said that he noticed that many times individuals would come up to him to ask questions after a service. And you know how people, people get kind of nervous and they're not sure how to start. And so one of the phrases they always use is when they have a question about the Bible is, well, I don't know much about the Bible, but. Well, he was in his own church on this one night. He was the associate pastor at Moody Bible Church. And this young couple came up to him. And so the, the guy says, he says, pastor, he says, we don't know much about the Bible, but. And he stopped them. He said, why? The guy said, why, why what? Well, why don't you know much about the Bible? Aren't you a Christian? Well, well y yes. How long have you been a believer? Um, ten, 10 years, 12. So why don't you know much about the Bible? Well, well y y you know. No, I don't. Please tell me. Poor guy, I'm sure he'd already turned several shades of red. And, the, and then Pastor Wiersbe said this to him. He says, before you ask your question, he says, do me a favor. Why don't you and your wife read the Bible every day for 30 days? Just a chapter a day, three chapters a day. Just read the Bible. Just spend time with the Lord and read the Bible every day. Once you've done 30 days in a row, you come back to me, I'll answer your question, whatever it is. And the guy said, okay. Well, a couple months later, Pastor Wiersbe saw this couple. And so he went over to him and he, he said, uh, he tapped the young man on the shoulder and he said, hey, how you doing? He goes, oh, Pastor, how you doing? We're doing great. And he said, uh, I've been waiting. And the young man said, for, for what? He said, well, I, I remember that I told you that if you would go home and you and your wife would spend 30 days in the Word of God, I would answer whatever the question is is have you not done that he goes oh yes we've been doing that he said oh wonderful he said well what's the question he said well that was kind of answered as we read the bible <laughs> and uh, he said that's wonderful he says that's normally how it works so the thing that we have to ask ourselves is this is this is not where we're trying to encourage everyone to study for ministry or to get your you know some phd and in, in understanding the greek or the bible it's just it's spending time with god because you love them. And even if you don't feel that affection, it's okay. You do it because you know it's right. And you spend time with him. And you will be changed. It's a marvelous work of the Lord. If perhaps you find yourself on the arrogant side of things. And you're not sure that you really need to change. I promise you that you probably do. And if you spend time with the Lord, he will reveal that to you. But he won't condemn you. He won't say you're a fool because you thought you didn't need to change. He will in loving, kind, and in his gracious way transform you to be like his son Christ. Amen. And you will be the one who we see, and others, but you primarily will be the, the beneficiary of that. You will be happier. You will have greater joy, greater peace, greater contentment, less tension, less anxiety. We can go on. It's not a pipe dream. It's reality. And normally, the ones who say that the Christian thing doesn't work because they never tried it. 
It's because they've not spent that time with the Lord. They've been waiting for the magic. There's no magic. But God is good and God is patient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and again for your patience with us. Father, we know that you know that we oftentimes are foolish. We also know, Lord, that you know that we are often lazy. And you also know that we know that we're also at times very impatient. We thank you, Lord, that you are not like us. We ask, Lord, you help us to become more like your son, Christ. Father, I pray that among all of us here, whatever excuses that we have in our head, whatever excuses that we are already forming that we're going to make to excuse our lack of time with you, we pray that you would just obliterate them and take them away. Help us to see that they are nothing but just simple excuses. I do ask this, Lord, that for each one who strives in your strength to simply spend time with you, even if it's only reading a chapter of the word each day, I ask, Lord, that you would bless them tremendously. I pray, Lord, that you would show them your transforming power. I pray they would experience the change that you have said would begin to take place. I've asked, Lord, you would open their eyes to see themselves not only as they are, but what we really can become in Christ. Father, for those who don't know you, we pray that you would help them to become completely and utterly dissatisfied with who they are. We pray, Lord, that if they have any strange view of themselves where they are obsessing on their deformities, we pray, Lord, that you would not take that away, but you would direct their gaze to the only one who can correct it, and that's you. Father, it's amazing when we think about how patient you are with us, even before we came to know Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that work in all of us. Thank you, Father, again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the indwelling spirit of God and for the hope that we have in Christ. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.